0: The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Wow, thank you, Michael. It's beautiful. If you have your Bibles, we're looking at Psalm 36 today. We're taking a little detour out of 1 Corinthians and I'm hoping that the the theme of the bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ and the cup of blessing of which we give thanks is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? What Paul's talking about, we have real communion with the Lord. I hope I can communicate that through Psalm 36 uh, this morning. And holding up uh, the gospel to us. Um, many of you know my brother is a pilot and uh, my dad uh, was an airline mechanic but he also was a private pilot as well. And so when I was a young guy, uh, elementary school, I used to spend a lot of time over at the Gaithersburg Air Park and used to go up in these little planes all the time. And I remember one time in particular being in the back seat of a little Cherokee and my dad would be wearing, he was wearing this hood over his head and it was to work on instrument training. So, the way to become an instrument-rated pilot uh, before you can actually fly into the real stuff and fly into the soup, they call it, which is the clouds, you have to be instrument-rated so you can fly IFR. Well, to practice that, you're flying VFR and your trainer puts a hood over your head so that you are learning to rely on the instruments because the instruments don't lie. And there's a problem that pilots sometimes have. And we hear about this all the time where there's a crash where some, the pilot thought that he was smarter than his instruments. And he gets in the soup and he begins to think the instruments are wrong, and I'm, it's like this, but I'm, I'm telling you, this is level, even though the instruments are telling you it's like that, and they end up going into a spiral and crashing. That happened with one of the Kennedys. And the point here is that we need the instruments as well. We need the flight school to remind us that God's word tells the truth, and our brains play tricks on us. And this passage goes into the first four verses of our hearts slippery, trickery to deceive ourselves. And then verses 5 to 9 talk about delighting in God and verses 10 to 12 of devotion. So we go from deceit to delight to devotion. Let's give attention to God's word so we can be trained by it. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise." Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to see ourselves as we truly are. Father, give us the grace to see you as you truly are. Give us the grace, Father, to not forget what we look like and deceive ourselves. Give us the grace, Father, to put these things into practice Give us the grace to see Christ in all of Scripture. For in your light we see light. So bring us into the light, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be quoting many of my friends this morning. And they're all, I think most of them are dead. These are great friends of the faith that I've never met. And uh, Matthew Henry Is the first one. And his little intro of this psalm, he just says, here in this psalm, we're led to consider two things, the sinfulness of sin and how mischievous it is, verses one to four, and the goodness of God and how gracious he is. Paul says in Romans 5, you probably remember the quote, you could finish it. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. That's what you get in this psalm. This psalm gets neglected. It does not get preached. I don't know why. This is a treasure of a psalm. And at first, it's kind of hard. It seems like there's such a a huge shift. You read the first four verses and it's like, well, how does that relate to all of a sudden verse five? It like, it just goes into how bad we really are and how good he really is and I'm reminded of the second question of the Heidelberg Catechism. You probably remember the first question, which is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is, I'm not my own, but belong to body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life making me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the first question. Second question, well then what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Do you remember? First, there's three things. First, how great my sins and miseries are. Two, or second, how I am delivered from all my sin and, and misery. Third, how to be thankful for such deliverance. And the theme of thankfulness runs through the whole Heidelberg Catechism. So how great are my sins and misery? How am I delivered from my sins and misery? And how am I to be thankful for such a deliverance? Well, I hope Psalm 36, we can do those three things as we go through this Psalm. Let's look at this, deceit, delight, devotion. Deceit, the very first verse is a bit tricky. In the Hebrew, uh, the different translations uh, favor a different rendering. So the first uh, verse is. Um, where it says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart and other translations say my heart and so it's a difficult passage so if if one rendering is correct the NIV would make more sense that an oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked there's no fear of God before his eyes And in that rendering, David will be reporting an oracle or a word from God about the wicked, that their sin is rooted in the fact that they have no fear of God. However, if the other reading, the New American Standard and ESV is correct, transgression is actually being personified as speaking to the hearts of the ungodly, that is sin speaks and entices them and whispers in their ear from the bottom of their hearts, this is what you ought to do. And the reason it would do this is because there's no fear of God. So I, I, and I'm not sure which is actually correct, but if if that's the case, uh, it it would be like this inner voice inside of us compelling us to sin. Um, But the upshot is there's no fear of God before his eyes. This is universal and Paul quotes this in Romans 3 when he gets to the climax of the problem of mankind. And the problem of mankind that every one of us universal We're born with this no fear of God before his eyes, meaning our heart motivation when no one is looking is not motivated by the eye ever seeing eye of God, nor an inclination to honor him, nor fear of disappointing him, nor no love to please him and no concern of offending him or provoking his wrath and justice. Rather, we fear what other people will think or whether we'll get caught or how this will look good in the sight of others because there's no fear of God. There's only fear of man. Fear of being embarrassed or ashamed. Fear of not being in vogue or in style or being cool. And because there's no fear of God, the, the, the upshot is, is that we elevate ourselves. It says he flatters himself. Now notice how twice, both in verse one and verse two, the chief uh, center of reality is our own eyes. There's no fear of God before his eye, he flatters himself in his own eyes. Meaning we are the standard by which we measure the universe rather than God being the standard from which he measures the universe. And so we flatter ourselves if we are the basis of judgment. If the basis of judgment is our then God has become dethroned, self-enthroned and we like what we see. And therefore flattery would be deceiving ourselves and not seeing that in and of ourselves, the Bible actually describes us in terms that are very dark. The utter and absolute filth of our life, our deeds, our words, our actions, our inclinations, our motivations, our behavior, they're actually corrupt in every way, the scripture says. That's what we mean by total depravity meaning not utter depravity not as bad as we could be but that every thought every inclination of the various parts that make up our will and our affections and our minds and, and our feelings everything is tainted by sin and so in this flattering ourselves though is that we spin it in such a way that the bible says that, that we actually glory in our shame And John Calvin in his commentary on Genesis 3 says, there's no man who does not smile upon his own folly. We somehow think it's cute, that it's really not so bad. And then we begin to deceive ourselves. Jonathan Edwards, I told you I'm quoting a lot of dead people today, has an insightful sermon uh, and he talks about self-flatteries. And he gives eight self-flatteries and I'll just give you, here they are. Some flatter themselves with a secret hope that there's no such thing as another world. Some flatter themselves that death is a great way off and that they shall have much opportunity later to seek salvation. Some flatter themselves that they lead moral and orderly lives and therefore they think they should never be damned. Some make the advantages under which they live an occasion of self-flattery, meaning I grew up in a Christian family and my parents are Christian and I go to church, therefore I must be okay, self-flattery. Some flatter themselves with their own intentions that they intend to seek God later. There are some who flatter themselves that they do and have done a great deal for their salvation. Some flatter themselves that they have hopes by striving to obtain salvation of themselves. And lastly, he says, some sinners flatter themselves that they're already converted when they're not. He flatters himself when, his sin, when the sin is discovered. You see, he says his, he flatters himself that his iniquity, it can't be found out and hated. And the idea of flattering, this idea actually means to smooth over one's conduct to one's conscience. So thinking of, of this Hebrew word is, is smoothing, as Spurgeon refers to it, Spurgeon says it's smoothing one's own path to hell. And if you think of Isaiah 40, which talks about make straight paths for God, what the sinner is doing is just the opposite. He's making straight paths towards a path of death and to hell. And so every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground become level, and all rough places a plain. He must smooth his conscience to convince himself that what he's doing is okay. And the Bible is saying it's not. This is why we need Jesus. This is why he had to come. Because we had no fear before our eyes. There was no holy awe. And as a result, Spurgeon says, he who makes little of God makes much of himself. They who forget adoration fall into adulation. The eye must see something, and if they do not admire God, they will admire self. And so, until God comes to undeceive us, and so we need him. Because his words, as it goes through and it lays out these first four verses, it starts in the heart but then it works to his mouth and now the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit and wickedness and so the corruption of the heart manifests itself outwardly so that what comes out is lying, deceitfulness, exaggerations, distortions, projection, blame shifting, manipulation, wickedness and his heart is affected by his words, his action, and then our wills are bent on not acting and walking in wisdom and doing what's good. Rather, it's bent on what is evil, and our patterns become inclinations towards serving self. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the Psalms, he talks about how the Psalms talk a lot about our words, and he says, and a lot of, a lot of them are very hard things. He says, you know, their, their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter. Under his tongue is ungodliness and vanity or fer- perjury. Deceitful lips and lying lips and words full of dece- deceit and the whisperings of evil men and cruel lies like cuts like a razor and talks that sound smooth as oil and words that would are like a sword and pitiless jeering he says it's all over the Psalter one almost hears the incessant whisperings tattling lying scolding flattery and circulation of rumors no historical readjustments here are required we are in the world we know we even detect in that muttering and wheeling chorus voices which are familiar and one of them may be too familiar for recognition referring to our own You see, it's universal. And then it says, the wicked have this thing where they plot trouble while on their their bed. Their last thoughts at night and the first thoughts of the morning are not on God. They're not on his word, how to love him more, but how to love self and how to satisfy lust, how to fulfill envies, always greedy for more, how to put others out of business, how to bring others into shame and myself into a better light. How to angle myself for getting what I, what I want at all costs, twisting and conniving, doing what it takes. I was conversing with a Christian roofer this week that had gotten wonderfully saved. And in his one of the reasons he went into business for himself, he was telling me was that his boss would tell him that make sure that insurance will cover that claim when you get on that roof. Meaning, if there's not enough for insurance to show wind damage, you produce the wind damage. And he would see his boss pulling shingles off of the roof tiles so that they could make a claim. And he just said he couldn't do it. And so he went into business for himself. You see, the wicked are always plotting how they can get what they want for themselves and maybe you're thinking how you can get alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend to commit shameful acts, or maybe you're searching for things on the internet that you'd be ashamed of if they were posted. Is it honoring the Lord, how you live? Do you need Jesus this morning? If so, verses five to nine are good news because all of a sudden there's this huge shift of this is the truth about us universally, one to four, and we need a change and the psalmist has wonderfully been caught and smitten with the love of God. He says, Your steadfast love, your Hesed love, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. God, in incredible forbearance and patience, in his common grace he has caused the shine the sun to shine this morning on the righteous and the evil his mercies are new every morning in Noah's day the flood that was sent down was just god was not unjust to kill men and animals and mankind god was not unjust and he will not be unjust when he destroys the world when he returns with fire as he's promised. But for now, his infinite patience is on display and that is for a reason. And Peter gives an inspired explanation in Second Peter chapter three. You may recall where Peter says scoffers will come in the last days and, and they're gonna sound a lot like Psalm 36. They're scoffing following their own evil desires and they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. For they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and be at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. You see, God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity, sin and rebellion, showing mercy to thousands. The Bible says our guilt has reached the heavens, and so has his love reached right into the throne room and Jesus himself. And here we are told of his Hesed love. Three times in this chapter, the psalmist is drawing our attention to God's steadfast love. His steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. How precious is your steadfast love, verse seven. And then again in verse 10, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. You see, the steadfast love of God is so immense, is so majestic, it's being described as mountains and reaching the heavens. It's the psalmist is saying, I can't take it all in. It's, it's, it's beyond me. And yet he's talking about in verse seven to nine how personal and precious it is that he can't let it get away from him. So it might be beyond him, he's in all of it, but he's in love with it. And if you do a word search on this word steadfast, if you have the ESV app, just do a a search on heavens, or uh, steadfast. There are over 100 references to God's steadfast love in the Psalms. And there's a lot of weighty things that the psalmist says. Because the psalmist is in love with God's love because God's steadfast love, his hesed love, has first loved him him psalm 5 verse 7 says i through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house i will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you it's how we entered the house how we got into god's kingdom how we came in through the abundance of his steadfast love how are our sins forgiven Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Psalm 25, for they've been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Not because of some good deed I did, but because of your hessed love. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my sin, pardon my guilt, for it is great. He doesn't say pardon it because it's small. Pardon it because it's great, but because of your steadfast love. And the psalmist says in Psalm 26, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I like that. If your steadfast love is now before my eyes, then I'm going to walk in faithfulness. Notice that's a lot different than the beginning of Psalm 36. It's all about my eyes seeing myself. And so continue your steadfast love, O Lord. Continue it. We see the devotion of the psalmist. He doesn't want the foot of arrogance to come upon him or the hand of wickedness to spring up and and get its way. Martin Luther said, watch, study, attend to reading. In truth, you cannot read too much in scripture. And what you read, you cannot read too carefully. And what you read carefully, you can't understand too well. And what you understand well, you cannot teach too well. And what you teach well, you cannot live too well. (laughs) Believe a man who's found this out. It is the devil, it is the world, it is our flesh that are raving and raging against us. Therefore, dear sirs and brothers, pastors and preachers, pray, read, study, be diligent. Truly, this evil, shameful time is not the season for being lazy, for sleeping and snoring. It is a time to be diligent. The steadfast love of the psalmist was his spiritual diet. How about you? How's your spiritual diet doing? Tell me about these vegetables you've been eating and the meat that you're eating and what you're fixated upon. Is the steadfast love of God your portion. Is it what's captivated you? Is it precious to you? Is it a feast for your soul? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, the cup of blessing of which we give thanks? Is it not a participation on the blood of Christ? The psalmist says here, we feed on the abundance of your house and you give us drink from the river of your delights. Isn't that the best thing we can say about communion? When we come to the Lord's table, we feed on the abundance of his house and we drink from the river of his delights. And it was your good pleasure, God, to bring us into your house and to show us the most incredible hospitality that we've ever seen. It's what our souls need and it's now where they feed. And we discover that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, He says this about God's love, think about this. The highest act of love is the giving of the best gift and if necessary at the greatest cost to the least deserving. So if you're gonna have the highest act of love, you gotta have the best gift, which is Jesus himself at the greatest cost, himself at the cross to the least deserving. That would be you and me. That's the grace of God. It's amazing love, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The psalmist is speaking of feasting on this abundance and drinking from this river. Are you drinking from that river? Are you tasting that food, heavenly manna? C.S. Lewis in his book on the Psalms again, he says about the psalmist, he says, his delight is in those statutes and to study them is like finding treasure. They affect him like music, they are his songs. They taste like honey, they're better than silver and gold. As one's eyes are more and more open, one sees more and more in them and it excites wonder. He says, this is not priggery nor even scrupulosity. It is the language of a man raptured by a moral beauty. If we cannot at all share this experience, we shall be the losers. So how do we get this if we don't have it? Well, we're told in verse nine that for with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. Sounds a lot like Jesus and we're told in John one verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes, John 5, 21. Jesus is the source of eternal life for his people. The fountain of life suggests an unending supply something that never runs dry, an artesian well that comes out of the heart, springing up to eternal life, rivers of living water. And the idea behind this, in your light we see light, is no man can illumine his own soul. All understanding must come from above. No man can receive anything unless it is given to him from God, John three twenty seven. John the Baptist. We can't make ourselves born again. We are all born blind and in our natural state, we can't see the beauty and the glory of God and his many delights because the Bible actually says that Satan has blinded our eyes. He's put cataracts in place and we can't see. Only God can open blind eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel. The glory of Christ is the image of God. And so in your light do we see light. We need God to do what we cannot do. Jonathan Edwards has a powerful sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light. And of course, he can't just give a short-term Sermon title, they must not have bulletins like we do in his day. The full title of the sermon was A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul By the Spirit of God Shown to be both a scripture and rational doctrine. And it was on Matthew 16:17 where Jesus had said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And when Peter makes his declaration that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does Jesus say to Peter? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father revealed it to you. It was a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God, shown to be a scriptural and rational doctrine. It was shown to Peter. And see, what Edwards is arguing is that this divine and supernatural light is is not just a belief. It's not, and that's one of the things that, I sent out this week in the, in the Piper message, and I'll explain that in a second, but it's not just a belief. It's a sense, it's a, it's a tasting of the loveliness and the beauty of seeing Jesus as beautiful and seeing God and, and, and seeing his steadfast love. You see, the reality is this. We love sin and we hate God in our flesh. The magnet is totally messed up. God comes with this magnet, and it's coming down, and it's coming down, and, and we got the magnet turned the wrong way. And you ever play around with magnets, and they go, and they shoot the wrong direction, ding ding. ding. And God comes down, and we and we're flying off, and we run from God. Until by the Spirit of God, the magnet flips, and now that thing comes down, and it, it jumps off there, and it runs to God. The magnet has to flip by the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can connect hearts to God. That's what God does. Otherwise, we we repel God. We love flesh. We hate God. We love our justification, our ways of getting to God, what we think about God. And now, all of a sudden, God turns the lights on and says, this is what he has done, that salvation is his work, what he will do. And what he does is he changes hearts, and he changes hearts to make God for God to be seen as he truly is. And you know how Edwards describes him the most? The one word? Sweetness. That's the number one word in Jonathan Edwards' works. It's not wrath. It's not justice. It's not sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is probably most than anybody's ever read about him. It's sweetness. Excellencies, delight, but sweetness, sweetness is what Edwards keeps talking about because he's in love with God are you. John Piper gave an address this last year and if you haven't listened to this message, it was powerful. I don't hear people preaching like this. His message at Together for the Gospel is called New God, New Gospel, New Gladness. And his point is, is for 200 years, all the church has been teaching about is to become a Christian is about a doctrinal belief and not about delight in God. If it's just, it's a decision. All we preach is decision. And he's saying, you can make a decision for God. That doesn't make you a Christian if your heart has not been fundamentally changed so that you delight in God. If you're not delighting in God, you haven't been converted. You may have made a decision and prayed some prayer, but what is that? That's not being born again. His point is this. He's saying once we were blind and we saw in the gospel nothing compelling. We thought we had a better God and a better gospel and a better gladness because our grain and wine were abounding. Basically life was going well, it was working. Then God shone into our hearts and the light of God was lifted up in the face of Jesus and we awoke from death And when we awoke, we didn't only see spiritual beauty with the eyes of our heart, we also smelled the spiritual aroma of Christ with the noses of our hearts. And we tasted the satisfying goodness of God with the tongues of our heart. And we touched the healing fringe of the garment of God with the finger of our heart. And we heard the song of God rejoicing over us with gladness, Zephaniah 3. And what is the point of a new fragrance of Christ, a new taste of divine kindness, a new touch of wholeness, a new sound of God's song? and a new sight of God's bright and smiling face, what's the point of those sensuous images of conversion? The point is the most basic, most essential distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian, listen to this, it's not new decisions of the will, it's not new deeds of the hands, it's not new doctrines in the mind, but a new delight in the heart, a new spiritual beauty, New spiritual taste, new spiritual touch, new spiritual fragrance, new spiritual sound. A new gladness in a new God through a new gospel. And out of that, Piper says this. From this new gladness comes new godliness. New prizing comes new praising. From new delights come new duties. From new desires come new disciplines. From new happiness come new habits. From new preferences come new purchases, from new contentment comes new kindness, from new cherishing comes new charity. From new pleasure comes new patience. From new satisfaction comes new sexual purity. From new cheerfulness comes new faithfulness. From new treasuring comes new tenderness. From new joy comes new justice. From new rejoicing comes new risk to do what is right. New savoring in the soul comes new sweetness on the tongue. And from the new life in the heart comes new love through the hand. And so, no longer are we living to deceive ourselves and to deceive others, but to delight in the steadfast love of God. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And we drink from the river of his delights. And we feast on the abundance of his house and we love church and we love being with God's people and we love to come to his table and we love to be in fellowship and we just love to sit around with people and tell me the story. Tell me what God is doing in your life and we just love to sit and linger and we're no longer in such a hurry and a worry about all the hustle and bustle of all the things that we're missing out on right now because we have chosen to be here. Are you kidding me? We have chosen the very best place to be for our souls for this hour of your life. And the Christian just wants it to go into overtime. I'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more, tell me. Give your heart to him because it's what we want to do because he's so good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are beautiful. You have done the unfathomable. Come and taken on flesh forever. Tasted our humanity. Called us to nothing that you haven't done yourself. Suffered at the hands of unjust and cruel men took the wrath of God, our, our sin, my sin, my hell, and stretched your arms out wide, would not call down angels. Out of great love for your children, you would see it through and say, it is finished. We thank you for this precious love of God. And Lord, we're so ungrateful. May this new heart bring new affections, new joy, and new life in us. Help us to grow in grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.